The first thing I would change is the correctional officers. They have some kind of trauma training. They're therapists, not cops. They know that the people who are coming into there are human beings and they treat them like that instead of calling me by a number or calling me an inmate or slapping labels on me that they have their own trauma they are allowed to process their trauma because they are traumatized by being in prison as well there's trauma that's experienced before incarceration there is trauma during incarceration causes its own trauma for the incarcerated person and for the guards who work there they see things that no person should see they endure things that no person should endure the hurt people hurt people and they are hurt and because of that hurt they hurt people who are incarcerated they compound that trauma and they just continue to traumatize each other this is impact the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship mindset and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story I wrote one note down in this interview. Imagine a world where correctional officers were trauma therapists. I think that this interview that I just did with a man named John Jackson is one of the most powerful conversations I have had on this podcast. And my intention was to intersect our series and our conversations on mindset and business and entrepreneurship and all the things with an opportunity for all of you to meet people of impact, people from all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds, varied histories of trauma and exposure, but individuals who in common are having unprecedented impact in the world. And as I pulled together that list, some lists of very recognizable people and others, there was one individual who was actually at the top, and it was John Jackson. I met John last year when I was arranging a keynote talk for Catherine Hoke to come in and speak to my group. And Catherine founded an organization called Hustle 2.0. And John works with her. John works with her now as one of the leaders in her organization, as the director of correctional partnerships. But John did not start his story that way. John did not start his story in a traditional leadership role. John Jackson was described by biocorrectional officers as the worst of the worst. He was entrenched in gang culture, and he served 18 years in prison. And what we talk about today are the experiences that led him to that place and the decisions that he needed to make to exit. Now, understanding life in prison is a facet of life that I have and continue to feel very alienated from understanding. It is far from my reality. But John's vulnerability, his empathy, and his humanity were all things that I felt and could relate to on a very deep level. I always say it was an honor to interview these individuals and I'm so excited for you to meet them. But like this 
today has a different flavor to it. I cannot wait for you to have the opportunity for insight and to hear this conversation. One of the most powerful I have had since I have started to podcast. It is my honor to introduce you to John Jackson. John Jackson, welcome to Impact. Thank you, Megan, for having me. I'm really grateful to be here and to share the space with you. Oh, well, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And I was just sharing with you again, um, but I I reached out to you uh, a few weeks ago and said, we've shifted the nature of this podcast and of this platform. And one of the things that I really want to do in a very intentional and concerted way is create a space to have conversations with people who are having very unique impacts on the world. And as I was sort of pulling together the list of people that I wanted to have a conversation in this uh, in this realm, uh, you were right at the very top. And we had an opportunity to connect last year. You worked with me to help have Kat come and, and speak to our audience. But I was really intrigued by you and your energy. Um, and I'm wondering, John, if we can start off by you sharing with us a little bit more about your story so everyone has context for my intrigue. You know a little bit of my story, so give me some guidance on what to share. Where would you like me to start? I do I do know a little bit about your your story. I would love for you to start off actually where we are right now with the work that you are doing in the world and why you are so uniquely qualified to be able to have the impact that you are having. Awesome. So I work for Hustle 2.0. We're an organization that serves people who are men, women, and unfortunately, youth who are incarcerated in the United States. And we currently serve in all 50 states in this country. We take a holistic uh, approach to rehabilitation and healing. Uh, We focus on trauma. And we like to say that uh, we're putting lipstick on the pig by making trauma fun, processing trauma fun. And we do a really good job at that. And what makes me uniquely gifted to do that is my experience of serving 18 years in prison, being a former gang member, and misusing my leadership skills and my ability to help people. I misused those skills for a very long time. But when I decided to change that and use those skills to help people and to heal myself, then I get to share my story in our books or on podcasts like this with you. Or I get to stand on a stage and share the experiences that I've been through. The people who are incarcerated see that, wow, this guy has been where I've been. He has been in prison. He's made these bad choices in his life. But wow, now look at him. He is working at this awesome organization. I I say I'm turning my pain into purpose. I could look at my life and say, oh, boo-hoo, I spent 18 years in prison. And that's a wasted 18 years. But I choose to look at that and say... I can use that pain and I can show it to other people and show them that they can come out the other side and still do amazing things and they can have an impact with their story or with their pain that it didn't happen for nothing. There's a lot of places we can go with that context, John. My first question for you is, when did you realize you were a natural born leader? When people started telling me that I was. And that happened while I was incarcerated when Catherine Hoke brought an entrepreneurship program to the prison that I was at. I knew that I had leadership skills, but when other people who were successful 
entrepreneurs started telling me, why are you doing this in prison? Do you know that you could be a CEO? You could be this, you could be that. You have natural born leadership skills. When these successful people started telling me this, I started to believe it myself. I want to back up to that time in your in your life before you were incarcerated. And I think one of the things that people don't understand and actually don't have an opportunity to inquire about is how do people end up in prison? What are the series of decisions or the decision or patterns that lead to that? In your case, and now you work with so many other incarcerated individuals, what are some of those commonalities? But how did you get there, John? I don't necessarily mean the event as much as I mean, like, what are the series of things that enabled that to happen for you? I love that question because I wasn't born a gang member. I wasn't born with the labels that have been placed on me. And I love it that you said the choices or the decisions that I made because they weren't mistakes, but there are circumstances that led to my incarceration. I think the biggest moment that led to that was when I was, I think I was 11 years old. And that's the last memory I have of my mom of as her tucking me into bed and going off to work. She still worked the graveyard shift. She was a waitress. And I get up the next morning and on my way to school, I see my mom's car parked on the street as I'm walking to school. And I walk up to the car and it's filled with blood. And that was my mom's murder scene. She had been beaten to death. So I found her murder scene. And after that, I never knew who my father was. So my mom's sister, she took me in. She became my guardian and she was a drug dealer. And she, one night I was, I was 17 and I was with her in the car one night when she gets pulled over and she's got drugs in the car. She's a cell crack. She's a natural born hustler, but definitely misused her skills as well. She'd already been arrested and she told me, John, I'm going to go to prison if you don't. She said, Take the, tell the cops they're yours. So I didn't want to lose my aunt. I already lost my mom. So I told the cops they were mine. And she watched as I was handcuffed and placed in the back of a cop car at 17 as a kid. And the person who was supposed to protect me, who promised to protect me, watched as I went to jail at 17 years old. And she praised me for it. And I felt like I did what I was supposed to do, right? I protect my, I protected my family from going to jail. And after that, I wanted more of that praise. So I committed my first aggravated robbery a few weeks after my release and gave her some of the money. And guess what happened? She praised me even more. So at 17, I'm getting exactly what I want. I'm getting, I feel accepted. I feel praised. I feel loved. I didn't, I didn't feel like I belonged to anyone. She had her own kids. So I know that she cared about me, but I I think I can explain it. But whenever I know that I'm not her number one priority, her kids are, and that's, that's, I don't fault her for that. That's, they're her kids. They're her children. You have children, right? If you, they are your number one priority in, in life, you will always put them first. So same thing for her. So I never felt like I belonged to anyone. So when I got to prison, when I got to jail, I became uh, a gang member. I got exactly what I wanted. I got my family that put me first. They loved me and accepted me. So there was those choice, those choices. But the short answer to that question is my aunt having me take a drug charge for her at 17 years old. That was the first time I'd ever had, I'd ever been arrested. And that started me on the trajectory to going to prison. And I'm so sorry 
for that experience. Because as you shared that, I think it's a gap in understanding. You know, we're all, I feel like as humans, we're all, we're all seeking that same sense of validation and love and belonging. And especially when we're young, we're, we're fairly agnostic to where that comes from. Like it is the number one beacon that is going to, going to draw us in. And then I think there's a subsequent lack of understanding, which is you went to jail, you saw what people will project as this horrendous situation. And then did that lead you to make better choices on the backside? No. Why is that? What happens in that period of incarceration that does not facilitate people moving towards making better choices when they come out? What happens that enables this to be a a perpetuation? So when I get to prison, the indoctrination is not from the, I'm using air quotes here, the rehabilitation system in 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 the United States of rehabilitating. The indoctrination is from gang members who say, come in, we're going to show you what you're supposed to do, who you're supposed to be. And it's very militaristic. So my indoctrination was into a criminal lifestyle, not into rehabilitation, not into healing, not into why, not the prison system asking me, why are you here? What happened to you that, that caused you to make these choices? It's lockdown, 23, 24 hours a day, months at a time, and being taught by the other people that are, I was 17 years old around grown men who had been incarcerated for 20, 30, 40 years. And I was 17 years old. Those became my mentors. They became my teachers. And just for an example, I, I wasn't even given access to get my GED. I finished the seventh grade. I wasn't given access to earn my GED until 10 years into my prison sentence to earn any, to get any kind of education. That, if that's an example of what our prison system can be like here in the United States. For a 17-year-old kid going to prison, I should have been in school, but that didn't happen. So I'm indoctrinated that this is what we do. This is how gang members behave. This is how you behave in prison. And I was schooled in criminality instead of being schooled in rehabilitation or given the option to process my trauma or heal. How similar is your story to the people that you were incarcerated with? Unfortunately, my story is not unique. My story is very common. The only unique thing about my story is that I, after my, since my release, I haven't broken any laws or committed any crimes or gone back to prison because the recidivism rate in this country is at 85%. And it's almost at, I think, in the 90s after. So within five years, almost 90% of people who are released from prison go back to prison. That's where my story is a little unique. But the trauma, the hardships, the bad decisions, that part is not unique. And so you have become this outlier in the statistical experience of we'll say the US prison system, but I am I am going to venture to guess that the Canadian system is not tremendously different in its ability to to shift the trajectory of the lives of the individuals who are incarcerated. Share with us what happened. How how did you have this this change in trajectory in your life? Did you leave prison at all during that time, John? Or you were there for 18 years? Yeah, I was there for 18 consecutive years. Can you just, before we get into the shift, what is life like in prison? It's not what you see on TV or movies. That I can promise you. You don't like walk up to the biggest guy, punch him and like assert your dominance. That's not the way 
I've never experienced that. That's not a good. Th- that's not a good rule. But so you, I found purpose in using my skills in in a create harm and destruction. I believed that that was what I was born to do. I'm very purpose driven, even if that at a time when that purpose was not good. But in prison, you find a routine, you find habits, you engage in those habits. I educate people. So many people in there. It's it's one of the largest untapped talent pools that exists. People in prison are so driven to to learn and educate themselves and to soak up knowledge because I think for so long we were denied that. But it just becomes habit. We seek structure. So prison is structure oriented. And there are so many rules and regulations, not by the cops, but by the people who are incarcerated. We create our own governments. We create our own economy. We create all of these things that keep us going every day. It creates this grit and this resilience for everybody in there to keep going and to have hope for something better. I don't know how to describe what it's like. You get used to the pain, you get used to the trauma. I think the best way to describe it is we wrote a course in our books called Emotional Suicide. And I know suicide implies a finality that you can't come back from that. But it was the best words we could use to describe it is that you have to kill your feelings and your emotions. You have to stuff them down because if not, you will not survive. You cannot do the things that you do in prison or see the things that you see in prison and feel empathy and compassion within that and keep going. So you have to kill those feelings, stuff those down. That's the best way that I could describe prison is you just have to kill your feelings and stuff them down and act as if they do not exist. I don't have to tell you that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't kill your feelings. You can try to numb them and they come out in unhealthy ways. I'm fascinated by this like self-governance and the creation of that piece. It's like micro society that gets created. Is there any joy or happiness that exists within that society? Yes. Even after my release, something that I craved was community and connection. We eat together. We work out together. Like we take care of one another. So when somebody is lacking something, if they don't have food, if they don't have deodorant, they don't have soap, we have a, we have welfare. We really have a welfare system where if you don't have deodorant, everybody would go around, hey, what do you need? What do you need? We have a kitty. We have a welfare pot where, hey, you don't have soap. We have soap for you. We have deodorant for you. We have everything that you need. We take care of one another. Doesn't mean that violence doesn't happen. Doesn't happen randomly, though. Violence happens. It's everything is, there's a reason why. It's not a good reason, but there's a reason why. And we all celebrate together. It really is a caring community. It's what, it's what makes gangs in prison so, uh, so attractive to people who have, don't have a family who cares for them or loves them or doesn't love them the way that they needed to be loved. The gang in prison will provide that in spades. How did you break from that? Because as you're telling this story and like just understanding how humans are and you have community and you have connection and you have people who are looking out for you and you have certainly not all your needs fulfilled, but needs fulfilled in a way that you, you maybe even were lacking in your youth. What happened and what were you exposed to that shifted this trajectory for you? Throughout my time, I did four years in solitary confinement locked in a cage it's basically the size of an elevator and you literally don't see the sun you literally don't feel the wind you literally never go outside literally i don't know how to explain it's literally you do not go outside you literally do not see the sun you are literally in a box and after i was released on october 22nd 2016 it was a day before my birthday and it was a day before i was supposed to be released 
I was supposed to go home on my birthday. I wasn't going home. I was starting another four-year prison sentence for crimes I committed while I was incarcerated. And that was a day I stayed I, on October 22nd. I stayed in my cell. We were, they released us out to yard. This wasn't solitary confinement. So they released us out to yard. I told my cellie, I don't feel good. I'm going to stay inside today because we we're supposed to go to yard. I'm, I don't feel good. I'm going to stay inside today. And I, I stayed in my cell and I cried because I wanted to go home. It was the first time since I had been incarcerated at 17 that I wanted to go home. I didn't want to die in prison. And I knew that if I continued to engage in gang and criminal activity, that I would die in prison. I would die in a box. Nobody would remember me. My homeboys would, they'd be sad for a, a moment or a day. And then the conversation would go to whatever was next. And I did not want that. I knew that I was meant for more than dying in a prison cell. In that moment, what was, what was home for you? Just not prison. It was anything but that. Anything but, anything but dying in a box. What happened next? Because it sounds like there was this emotional opening for you. There was an emotional opportunity to see things differently. The changes, they didn't happen overnight, um, but I made gradual changes. Um, there is no, before this, there is no way out of a gang. The way you get out of a gang is you die or you snitch. And I didn't snitch and I'm not dead. But I started making gradual changes, and those changes were giving up my giving up all the privileges that came from being a high-ranking gang member at the time, of making money, selling drugs, selling cell phones, engaging in the microeconomy that exists in prison. I gave up all of the, I started giving up all of those privileges. The further I got into these baby steps, the bolder I got. I'm I like to call myself courageous and stupid at the same time, and eventually I found I told my my homeboys my fellow gang members like i'm not i'm not doing this anymore and if you guys want to kill me then you can i'm okay with that um i'm gonna be here every day but i'm not i'm not gonna keep doing this and i was ridiculed i was threatened i was incarcerated at a super the only supermax prison we have out here the label for us is the worst of the worst that's literally the label they give us um, at this prison, the worst of the worst. That's a horrible, uh, if you think about that, just go down that trajectory of the worst of the worst. They finally told me, is this what you really want? And I said, yes, that's what I want. I want to go home. And they said, all right, if that's what you want. You can go home. You're not one of us anymore. We want, and I asked him why. He said, because it's, it's funny to me that you're a square. You're not really a gangster. You've, you've just been pretending to be one all your life. You could do better. They told me, I don't want to see you die in here. Go home mind your own business and everybody will leave you alone. And they did. Everybody left me alone. And two years after that, I paroled. I, I was released from Pelican Bay State Prison. Is there support for individuals like you who have a strong change of intent around how you want to be involved in prison life? Like, could you put your hand up and say, hey, I, I'm like, guys, I told them I'm done. And now I want support because I'd really like to like, I really want to do good things. Is there like any system that lets you identify yourself as someone who's like, I want help. I want to rehabilitate. I want to go home. I want to be good. Like, So now there is. So that's where in our curriculum, we have what's called squaring up. So they called me a square after that. I was a square. So we called our, our gang retirement plan, we called it squaring up. And it needs to be shown with your actions, not your words. If they're at an institution or a prison that provides rehabilitative programming, it's engaging in that programming. It is 
no drugs, no alcohol. It's cutting those things off. It is not engaging in gang and criminal activity because I can see that. The other gang members, the other people who are incarcerated can see that. And they're probably going to make fun of you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to ostracize you. And that's what has to happen. That's part of the process. It's part of the process of changing your life. You're not turning your back, but you're giving up your family and you're giving up all the the values that were instilled in you from those people and saying, I have a new set of values. Doesn't mean that I still don't love the people who I was incarcerated with. I love them dearly. I miss them, but I don't want to be where they are. And I want them to come to this side where I'm at. I want them to one day be on your podcast and share their story. That is what we want for them. So if they need to show it with their actions, not talk about it. John, where did you find this level of courage inside of yourself? Um, I believe God and has, I know what my purpose on this earth is and it is not to die in prison. I believe that God has given me the courage to live out my purpose because it is, many people might know what their purpose is, but knowing what your purpose is and choosing to live it out are two different things. I, I think I'm sometimes arrogant. And I, I need a dose of humility every once in a while, and I get it. I, I get that dose of humility, but things have always worked out for me for some reason, somehow, some way. And I believe that things will always work out for me. And if they don't, then that's just the way it was meant to work out somehow. It doesn't mean that I don't have control over my destiny. I believe that I have control over my life and my choices. And I can make the best choices available to me in that moment. And they may not be the, they may not always be the best, but I'm making the best choice I can in that moment for me. I am the expert of my life and I know what I need. John, I love that you just said things always work out for you. And you've just shared that on the heels of this, this really tragic portion of your life. Like that is an inherent state of, of optimism that I really applaud you for. Like that's, it's amazing. Has that always been part of your mindset? Have you always had access to being able to look at the cup half full? I believe I have. I've always believed that things will work out for me somehow. And even if it doesn't work out the way that I want it to, it worked. And making the best choice available to me at that time, um, looking back, I think of how many times things I could have been killed or severely hurt or whatever it is. And I made it. I'm I'm here. I'm still here. And I'm still going. It doesn't mean that I don't feel pain. It doesn't mean that I'm not sad sometimes about my experiences. But I've forgiven my I, forgiveness. Cat preaches forgiveness a lot, you know, and forgiveness is very important. I've forgiven myself for the bad choices that I've made and the pain I've caused, and that allows me to keep going forward and realize that it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. When you talk about the worst of the worst, the men that you knew in in prison there. Are those individuals reachable if they were given different opportunities? Yes. Well, that's what we get to do at Hustle 2.0. The way this came about, the way Hustle 2.0 came about is the founder came in and asked us, do you want to be known for the worst thing you've ever done? And you've met Kat Hoke. She is ridiculously crazy brave as well. And told us like i'm not scared of you well you think i'm scared of you because you're some big time gang members i'm not scared of your rap sheet nobody's scared of you nobody cares do you want something better for your grandkids for the future generations for the communities do you want to do you want to use your leadership and your voice 
for positive change? And we said yes. And instead of being told we're the problem, the cops have been trying to solve the gang problem for years. They haven't made any progress. When you lock a gang member away, guess what? They don't stop being a gang member. They're still a gang member. So instead of locking us away and calling us the worst of the worst and any other labels they want to throw at us, she asked us, do you want to be part of the solution? Do you want, you can, you can, you can be part of the solution. And we took that opportunity and said, yeah, you know what? We will do that. We will become part. We will use our voices to speak to the next generation and tell them we don't want to see you in prison. We don't want to see you here. This is not what you were meant for. If you want it, there's a spot for you. But if you don't, if you want something better, you can have that. And the same thing for our guys who have been incarcerated for 30, 40 years that are on our writing team that share positive messages. They just needed, they just needed somebody to say, Hey, I see value in you. I see worth in you and you can do better than you can do more if you want to. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to do it. And they seize that opportunity. And it doesn't mean that they, they're not angels. They're not saints. They're not like they haven't completely reformed their lives and turn into Mother Teresa. They're still making bad choices, but guess what? They're having an impact on the next generation to do positive things. They, I am out here doing what I get to do because they chose to see value in me and say, you know what, John, if you want to go home, go home. What is your purpose? My purpose is to share my story and write curriculum for Hustle 2.0 and inspire people who are incarcerated to see that they can, they can come out through this stronger and they can take the best of their experiences in prison. Like what I got, I got leadership, grit, resilience, determination. I got all of those things from prison and from being from my former gang affiliations. And I get to use that now to have an impact on people. My purpose is to show them that they can do this and to show people out here that just because I have a criminal history or I what, whatever labels are on me, they don't define me. That way when next time someone who whoever hears this podcast when they come when they interact with someone who is formerly incarcerated they remember oh i remember john jackson he was pretty awesome and i would give him a chance so i see this person standing in front of me who has a criminal history or who has these labels slapped on them i'm going to give them a chance for just this minute i'm going to bestow upon you this power and it's imaginary because i have zero authority to do this you get to reform the prison system. You get to, like you get to drive these changes. What are the most critical things you are going to change immediately? The first thing I would change is the correctional officers. They have training. They have trauma training. They have some kind of trauma training. They're therapists, not cops. They know that the people who are coming into there are human beings and they treat them like that. Instead of calling me by a number or calling me an inmate or slapping labels on me, they have their own trauma. They are allowed to process their trauma because they are traumatized by being in prison as well. There is trauma that's experienced before incarceration. There is trauma during incarceration causes its own trauma for the incarcerated person and for the guards who work there. They see things that no person should see. They endure things that no person should endure. The hurt people hurt people. And they are hurt. And because of that hurt, they hurt people who are incarcerated. They compound that trauma and they just continue to traumatize each other. And I, I, I think that would be my first step in reforming the prison system. We don't have enough time to talk about the money and profits that are made off of people who are incarcerated. But another part that I would change is that 
in California, it costs $80,000 a year to incarcerate one person. And if they were incentivized to keep people out, if the government paid them to keep people out instead of to bring people back in and give them $80,000 a year to incarcerate somebody, maybe our recidivism rate would flip. Maybe 90% wouldn't go back. Maybe 90% would stay out. Sometimes it's the most simple ideas shared by the people with the right perspective that start to impact the world. And it's why I wanted to have this conversation with you, John, because it is not possible for me or any of my non-incarcerated contemporaries to have the insight that you have and to alone be making, not that I'm making any decisions to be very clear, but to be making these decisions, the politicians, the leaders, the people who are thrust into a position who are suddenly responsible for these, these elements. And this is the intention of these conversations is having the opportunity to glean insight into uh, lives, lives and perspectives that I may not have and our listeners may not have had access to otherwise. And I know you've shared a lot about uh, you've shared a lot about your journey. I'm wondering, can you just share a little bit more about Hustle 2.0, like how you work as an organization? Because I, I love the work that you are doing. I remember the first time I heard Catherine Hoke speak at an event. Naturally, like ten minutes later, I was like a big mushy puddle on the on the floor because she's super powerful at just like uh, drawing the shit out very fast. But her work is really powerful and direct and like. On a, on a human level. And I'd love for people to know more about the work that you are both respectively doing for individuals who are incarcerated. I think when Kat spoke to your community, we were in two prisons. We are now in over 550 jails and prisons Stop across it. the country, and we serve in That's all 50 amazing. states. And that is a great number. Unfortunately, there in the United States, there are over 6,000 prisons in this country. So we still have our work cut out for us. In Canada, it might be called a non-government or an NGO. In the U.S., it's called a non-profit organization. We are not that. We believe that the government is part of the problem of incarceration, and we think they should be part of the solution with us. So, we, we have them pay for our programming, and they provide it to their incarcerated population. And what we do is we use peer-to-peer language in our books. My job at Hustle 2.0 is to take you know, the DSM-5. We are capable of getting a person that... that Nobody, I don't know very many people who want to read a DSM-5. I do um, Or, uh, <laughs> but I, I do read it. And my job is to take that book and make it digestible to a person who's incarcerated and make them want to read it. And they do. Our courses focus on trauma. So, you're an entrepreneur. So, what we do is we, the way we slap, uh, an example of the way we slap lipstick on that pig is we have a course on trauma to help them process trauma. And the way we do that is we use case studies and testimonials. So we flip that and we called it traumapreneurs. So entrepreneurs are so good at what they do because so many entrepreneurs have experienced high levels of trauma in their life. For so many entrepreneurs, you need to be able to read a room. So many times you learn, entrepreneurs learned how to read that room because when they walked into their family's home, if they didn't understand what was going on, it could result in a beating. It could result in abuse. So they, t- they took that trauma and they turned that into, oh, well, I can read a boardroom really well. So we want to teach them and show them that the successful entrepreneurs out here have gone through so much trauma, so have you, and you can use that trauma 
as an entrepreneur to be successful and go legit and run a legitimate company or run a legitimate business by processing that trauma and understanding that it, it can be a tool and it could be a strength for you. And that gets them to, uh, that starts to get the people that we serve to understand that they're not alone. They can heal, they can process this trauma and they can do something with it and not just continue to perpetuate the cycle of trauma and victimizing other people. What is your success rate in being able to shift people? That's a hard question to answer because success is the recidivism and success is defined in Mm -hmm. very different ways. So we have a net promoter score. I want to say around 80% plus and a net promoter score is people who believe that our program is the best program that they've ever taken while incarcerated. And we have a graduation rate of close to 80% as well of people who take our program. The surprising thing is, is we can't produce books fast enough. We have had one person tell us that they had to turn their book into their substance use counselor because they couldn't put it down. They were up all night reading it. And so that was the best compliment we've ever gotten. They had to turn their hustle. Our books are called hustle guides as we're teaching them to transform their hustle. That's the best compliment we, we've gotten so far. Predominantly, we serve people who are serving long-term sentences. So not many of the people that we serve have been released yet. Okay. We like to catch them early on in their incarceration. It's a journey. And if we catch them six months before they're being released, it's not going to have the impact that we want it to have. Healing and recovery takes years of hard work. And we are in the early stages of helping them heal and create impact in their lives. John, I could not have summarized that better myself. And I feel like this is a really perfect place to shift the nature of the interview. And I've got a few like quick questions for you because I want people to really understand the, the life you are living right now. And we're getting a glimpse of the impact that you're having. What do you do for fun or play? I ski my heart out. I know I've seen pictures of you skiing. I was hoping you'd say that. I live in Lake Tahoe, California. I have access to a resort. I have access to the mountains and the lakes. And this is my second year skiing, but I I don't know why, but I took to it so naturally. I, on my first year ever skiing with no lessons, I was launching myself on double black diamonds and ridiculous. That's where my arrogance (laughs) and my courage comes in. And I love it. I love getting out on the mountain and playing in the snow. What's a non-negotiable for you in your life? Um, engaging in criminal activity. That's a non-negotiable for me. Um, it's, it's, just, it's a hard no. And it doesn't mean that I don't have criminal thoughts. It doesn't mean that, these, it doesn't mean that I still don't. Criminal thinking is... Uh, I think we all have criminal thoughts. We see opportunities that are against... Whether it's speeding. We tell ourselves, ah, well, the speed limit's 25 but I'm in a rush. I need to get where I need to go. So it's okay for me. That rule doesn't apply to me. Right. For me, I still have those thoughts. But guess what? I go one mile under the speed limit because I, I can't afford to be pulled over and, have the, and be arrested again. I can't afford that. So for me, that is a hard no. Are we born to be entrepreneurs or do we learn that skill as we go? I think it's both. I think people can be born and people can learn it. I think everybody is inherently born to be to create something and to take risks. And I think the definition of an entrepreneur is one who assumes risk. A person who assumes that risk, we all are inherently born to create and take risks. And I think when people choose to lean into that, they can do some amazing things. 
Last question for you, John. What do you want your legacy of impact to be? I was talking about this yesterday. I want to create an academy of people. Uh, I want to create a good military. I want to create a military of social change of people who come to my academy and they learn to do amazing things to help people, to heal people. And they are launched, they are deployed into communities around the world. And they help people heal and they they heal communities and they use their lived experience to create change for those communities. And they are an army of good, an army for social change. John Jackson, this has been one of the most amazing, memorable podcasts I have ever recorded. And I want to thank you for that. Where can I send people to follow along on your journey of impact? Uh, They can go to hustle20.com. And if you feel compelled to sponsor a person who's incarcerated for their scholarship, you can look at their reason why they think they can be, they want to be a certified hustler and change their hustle. And it costs 50 bucks. And I guarantee you, you will have an impact in their life because they are waiting for a second chance and you can provide that for them. So, that is my ask or how your listener is going to have an impact on somebody they may not even know. I love that. John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.